Um, so this morning, um, I, I'm preaching out of a very difficult text, so I kind of want to give you like a, a framework of how I'm going to do this. Uh, there are a couple levels of interpretation and context that I'm going to consider. And so for Genesis 38 in particular, uh, my, like, I'm going to have like a microscope on the life of Judah and his relationship with his father in particular, uh, his father, Joseph. Okay? I'm sorry, Jacob. Joseph is his brother. Jacob. And then if, I, if there's a concentric circle, the secondary consideration is going to be on the book of Genesis. And then finally, the bigger circle is going to be the Old Testament. And the final circle is going to be the gospel and how all of this ultimately foreshadows the gospel. And that's the direction of uh, the message as well. And so... Uh, I want to start off by giving a little introduction about myself, uh, a little bit about my upbringing that many of you guys may not know about, but uh, unlike most pastors, I actually became a Christian before my father. Personally, I can't remember a time when I didn't love Jesus. Um, ever since I was like in second grade, I was evangelizing to my neighborhood friends, and no one told me to or taught me how to. It was just one of those things that the Holy Spirit just gave me the conviction to do, and I did it. Um, but I distinctly remember my father converting from Buddhism to, Christian, to the Christian faith when I was in the fifth grade. And despite my father completely, you know, becoming this new man, uh, after, his, after his conversion, he had already left a lot of emotional scars in our family by then. And so for many of us, who grew up with childhood trauma, the marks left by our parents or other guardians, whether emotional or physical, can seem like burdens that we must carry for the rest of our lives. And, and, you know, by faith, yes, Jesus carried all of our burdens on the cross, and by faith, the Holy Spirit is already and has indeed healed us, is already healing us, and has healed us. Yet, there's this other reality where Complete healing can seem like a lifetime away. And in one sense, it's because it is a lifetime away. And until then, we live, we thrive, we sometimes just survive, and surviving is winning. And as we get older, I'm noticing this in myself, but as we get older, isn't that true that we can't help but fear that we'll become just like the people that hurt us, that will hurt our friends or our children the same way we were hurt, ultimately becoming the very person we hate most. Today's story from Genesis 38 deals with these following questions. What generational sins or sins committed by your parents or other guardians have had a lasting impact on you? What did you observe or indirectly or, or directly experience that shaped who you are today. And so if I could retitle this morning's message, it would have been freedom from generational sins. And so how might the Lord be working in your heart this morning with that? Let me pray before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and um, we thank you for the few and faithful who stuck around during this amazing weekend. <laughs> We thank you that um, all these people here came here to just want to worship with our church family and to learn what you have to speak to us. 
or despite the weather being nice, despite our weekend plans, um, you know, I'm sure are going to be amazing. We're here this morning learning about generational sins. So God, we pray that you may just help us to stay focused, that your spirit may speak to us in a tender voice. Pray that you may meet us as a loving father would. And to just embrace us as we go on this ride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Genesis 38. Let me give you some context to the story. Uh, turn there if you haven't already, but Genesis 38. This chapter, I think, is one of the most random and overlooked stories in the Bible. I think growing up, I read Genesis probably like three times by the time I was in middle school, and I never knew what Genesis 38 was about. It just didn't make sense. It seemed very out of place. And if you can recall from your Sunday school lessons, you know, Joseph was sold into slavery in chapter 37, and then he, um, in chapter 39, we learn about his journey as a, as a slave and, and his uh, rise to, the, to be prime minister of Egypt. But ch chapter 38 isn't really talked about in Sunday school. We don't talk about it because it's messy, it's violent, it's sexual. If you actually read it very slowly, it reads like a, like a, uh, like a template, a manuscript for, or transcript for like an episode out of Game of Thrones. It's really weird. Nothing is sugar-coated, and for good reason. This text is meant to reveal the incredible depths of human depravity, but coupled with the unlikely but completely possible reality of forgiveness and redemption. But to understand how all of this comes about, we need to understand the story of Joseph. And I have a picture, a family tree, but I don't know if you guys can read it from there. Is it too, too small? Fonts, you guys can kind of read it? All right, if you can't, I apologize. This is the best one I could find, and I thought about making my own, but I got lazy, so this is all you got, all right? So I'll explain to you. The top part says Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah. You know, they're the grandparents or great-grandparents, I guess. And so they start this family, right? Um, and then the next line is Isaac and Rebekah. Then they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob has four wives, and these... The bottom green or bottom bluish green line um, is where all the 12 sons are. And we're dealing, this chapter 38 is dealing with the story of Judah, which is number four, under the line of Leah. Leah, Leah, whatever. Now, looking at this family tree, we see that Jacob had two, actually he married two people and the two other wives or technically female servants whom he had children with, they were actually trafficked. If We'll get into that later. It's a little, it's, it's, not, that cl it's not that clean here. His favorite wife was Rachel, who's on the furthest right. And her oldest son became his favorite son as well. And this became most clear when the sons were very young. And so if you guys recall the story of Jacob and his older brother Esau, Esau had beef with Jacob, 
and initially wanted to murder his brother Jacob. So Jacob ran away to his uncle's house, and he married his cousins, which was permitted back then, and he started a family there. After many years, he decided it was time to come back home and face his past, but he wasn't sure if his brother still, uh, was still mad at him, so he arranged his caravan that he was traveling in, or a traveling group, uh, to go in a certain order. And this jacked-up husband and father put his least favorite wives and sons in the front of the caravan and his favorite wife and sons in the back. Why did he do this? Yeah, just in case his brother Esau was still mad and would want to attack him, murder his family, he wanted the least favorites to serve as a buffer to give time for his favorites to run away. Now, just imagine when Judah was a child on his way back to the land of Canaan with his family, and, his, and he hears his father saying, all right, now all you, all you boys and your moms, you're in the front, and Rachel and your brothers will be in the back. And just imagine little Judah. This isn't the Bible, just, but just use your imagination a little bit, right? Just imagine little Judah risking death for his father's sins against his brother Esau, riding on a camel or something behind his mother, and asks his mom, Mom, why is Joseph and Benjamin in the back? And just imagine the pain he would have seen on his mother's face as she dealt with the reality that her husband was willing to sacrifice her life and the life of her sons for her younger sister. Imagine the pain he would have seen on his mother's face as she tried to whitewash her husband's selfishness as she's been doing for their entire marriage. Imagine the pain he would have seen on his mom's face as she wrestled with the feeling of worthlessness in the presence of her sister. Judah grew up knowing something was very wrong with his family. Now, as the boys got older, they increasingly became jealous of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son through his favorite wife, Rachel. And because of Joseph's brother's jealousy towards him, this is now chapter 37, summarizing it, they conspired to kill him. And they trick his father into thinking he was eaten by a wild animal. And instead, what they do is they sell him into slavery and make some money off of him, and their father thinks he's dead. And when they tell their father this bad news, you know, it was expected that he would be sad, but no one expected him to be so melodramatic. Because if you read the end of 37, it says, I wish I were in hell. His father makes such a dramatic scene that his sons begin to wonder whether he loves any of them at all. It's, it's like, Dad, I, I, come on, you still have 11 of us left. It's not the end of the world. But this scene serves... It just, it just, it's just too much for Judah to bear. He's had enough. He grew up hearing about God's 
promises to their family that they would become a great nation and a blessing to the world. He heard about the prophecy given to Adam and Eve that a son in their family will one day eradicate evil once and for all. Was that promised child Joseph who was sold into slavery? Maybe. Could it have been Jacob? Definitely not. That man is a terrible dad and husband. Could it have been himself, Judah? Most likely not. He's, he's ready to just give up and run away. His father doesn't even acknowledge his, his existence. Whatever the case, Judah has had enough. He's simply not interested anymore in being a part of God's plan for his family. He's experienced so much trauma. Saw his mother get abused by his father for too long. And with the loss of Joseph, his father's reaction and blatant favoritism is just too much for him to handle. And in a weird way, can't we all relate to Judah? Haven't we all wanted to run away from our pain, fears, and struggles? Judah just wanted a fresh start at life. He wanted to get away from his family. I remember when I was 16, when I just got my driver's license, I was going through this rebellious phase and I wanted to run away from my family. And the furthest I got was the opposite end of the town to my pastor's house because I was stopping by to say goodbye and I chickened out. <laughs> but I, mean, I think all of us have had these thoughts, these temptations. You know, college students do the same thing when they see education and success as their keys to freedom and independence. Isn't that why all of us put out-of-state colleges as our first choice? And most of us never go because we don't have enough scholarship money to fund it. Young professionals move to big cities as a way of escape from the suburban or rural upbringings. In certain circumstances, moving away might actually be, you know, healthy and wise, especially when recommended by godly biblical, you know, counsel. But the problem with Judah wasn't, wasn't that he was running away from his family. He was trying to run, run away from God. And this is where we now see the main problem of this chapter. It's, yeah, it's his main problem with this clean break approach with our past. This clean break approach doesn't fail in Judah's life because he chose the wrong path. The clean break approach fails all of us because we can't make a clean break with ourselves. And as we'll see, as Judah's fresh start family begins to implode, he perpetuates and exacerbates the same old pathological issues he learned from his father, Jacob. Now let's read verse 1 through 2. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, the first issue that we see that Judah is struggling with is one of sexual restraint. Judah, if you look at the text, doesn't romance his wife. He doesn't pursue her. It says he saw and took her. This language suggests lustful desire and sin elsewhere in Genesis. Some scholars even suggest that this language implies bride kidnapping, where a man sees a beautiful woman on the street, sexually assaults her, and gives her the option of marrying her rapist or live in perpetual shame for the rest of her life. 
like his father Jacob, who basically had two wives, trafficked two others, and showed favoritism to one, Judah was a complete failure as a lover and husband. Verse 3 to 5. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Now notice the three boys that are, um, that are mentioned here. Who names the first son? The father, right? Who names the other two boys? The mom, right? Now, that's, there's an intentionality in that. It, 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 what do, why does the father name the first son? Does the name mean something? And yes, it happens to mean something. His firstborn son, Er, the name Er, or the word Er, is actually the word um, evil in Hebrew written backwards. This is a jacked up dad, right? <laughs> this is probably done as a blatant insult to God and his rejection of the God of his fathers. It's his way of saying, the bridge is burned. I'm no longer following you. Even the town he chooses to settle in um, is literally, it can be translated as a city of lies, or in our context, a city of masks, the city of false, fresh starts. Not only did Judah reject God, but he fully embraced the lifestyle of the world. The further he tried to run away from God, the more we learn about his true self, who he really was, and who he was becoming. Verse 6 through 10, and Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So, just a question for all of you. When was the first time God ever uh, just intentionally killed human beings for their sins? That we know of. When was the first time God kills human beings intentionally? Just shout it out. What is it? I mean, Noah's flood. Yes, it's the flood, right? When was the second time? No, golden calf. What is it? No. Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if Noah's flood was the first, Sodom and Gomorrah was the second, this right here is the third recorded instance of God intentionally killing people in biblical history. And if Noah's flood was the destruction of 99% of the human race, Sodom and Gomorrah were destruction of cities, this is the first time in history that we know of where God kills individuals for their wickedness. I mean, they must have been pretty bad, if not straight up evil, right, for God to do this. What did they exactly do? Why was it so evil? 
In all the instances of God striking people dead in the book of Genesis, the common theme, the common sins are sexual and idolatry. It's usually sexual assault and idolatry. Although we don't know the exact reasons now for heirs' death in verse 7, the thematic language of Genesis implies sexual assault and idolatry. And in the context of Jacob and Judah, it makes even more sense that this child is now learning from his father. Furthermore, in the ancient world, people married shortly after puberty, so Tamar was probably still a teenager, and this practice of letting the next son impregnate the widowed daughter-in-law was intended to perpetuate the memory and family line of the deceased husband who died childless, and to also alleviate the, po the poverty of the widow so that she could be provided for by this child when she gets old. This command from God that the other brother try and give your sister-in-law, who is now a widow, a child, it was a, is a command in Deuteronomy 25. It's an ancient form of welfare. And so, obviously, all parties have to agree to this. You can't just say, all right, I'm going to give you some welfare now. And the, obviously, the woman has to say, yes, I want this too, because she knows that if she does not have a child, she has three options. She could live in poverty for the rest of her life. She can go back to her father's house, maybe, maybe get remarried, but try and hope that she inherits her father's property. But in this world, only men can inherit your parents' property, so probably not. Third option was she becomes a prostitute. So she wanted this. It's implied. But Onan, Onan knew that if he raised up a child for his deceased brother heir, that child would inherit the blessings promised to heir that was now his. It would no longer go to him. Meaning, remember, for the birthrights in this era, what happened was the firstborn son always inherited everything of the fathers, pretty much. And so, Onan grew up thinking, yeah, I'm not going to get anything, so I might as well make a name for myself. My brother Er is going to get it. And what do you know? Er is dead. This is awesome. But if I give my brother's wife a child, a son in particular, he'll get everything. And I won't. So what does he do? To maintain his new position of privilege, he was willing to erase the legacy and memory of his brother in a way that is reminiscent of the violent jealousy of Joseph's brothers, of Judah's jealousy towards Joseph. Onan turned this honorable duty into an opportunity to exploit defenseless Tamar. In other words, again, scholars say that Onan essentially raped Tamar for his personal sexual gratification here. Tamar had been privately shamed by the sexual abuse of Onan and publicly shamed by the growing perce perception, perhaps encouraged by Judah, that she was cursed, that anyone that slept with her died. She was yet another victim of the sins of the members of God's chosen family. 
And the word whenever in verse 9 highlights the fact that Onan's behavior was, re, uh, was repeated and regular. And as a result, God struck him dead. And this is important. Who says the God of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, approves of rape and pillaging? I get this all the time from non-Christians on campuses. God does not approve of rape and pillaging. God, from the very early on in his, on human history, before laws against rape were even codified, had a special concern for widows and rape victims. To the degree that he actually struck people dead. He did not turn a blind eye towards such, then, such sin, not then and not now. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So, you know, we saw that there was all this junk being dumped on Judah during his life, during his childhood. But now we see that he's the one dishing it out on everyone else, everyone else around him. By the end of this first part of the story in verse 11, most of it is now being dumped on Tamar. And isn't it really strange? It's a way, really strange way of thinking. Judah committed all this evil, sold his brother into slavery, ditched his family, assaulted a woman and married her, ran with the wrong crowd, and ignored his children, and yet he was so sure that the death of his two sons was Tamar's fault. The level of Judah's self-deception and blindness is both astonishing and frightening. It's astonishing because as outside observers, we can see that he's clearly wrong in blaming Tamar. It's frightening because we do the same thing, don't we? We're all prone to living in cities of lies, distorted versions of reality overlaid with a thin layer of our own innocence. When we're confronted of our sins, we prefer to get defensive rather than owning up to our mistakes. In one sense, this ability to make a distinction between things that are, own, that are our own faults and things that come from others is actually a learned skill. Learn this in counseling. You know, when parents get a divorce, who do children tend to blame? Their parents, God, or themselves? Themselves. You know, they apologize to their parents insistently for something they view as being their fault. They feel responsible. They say things like, Dad, I promise to get better grades in school. Please don't leave. Mom, I promise to help with the chores more. Please don't leave. But most people, as they get older, they learn to differentiate this, something that's truly their fault and something that isn't their fault. But children of trauma oftentimes struggle with that. We find ways to blame others and become blind to our own guilt. And this blindness can make the harmful effects of our sin against others even worse. And you can't help but wonder whether Judah felt this way growing up. Why does daddy love Joseph more than me? What did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? As he got older, one can only wonder how this self-doubt evolved into one of anger and bitterness. Verse 12 through 19, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to, sheep shear, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping her, herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the way, it's just on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, she thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Judah's sexual appetite was apparently a matter of common knowledge. He headed out on a business trip at sheep shearing season, and this is like the cultural equivalent to student trips to Florida during spring break. Uh, sheep shearing season was when everyone went crazy. Like, this is when you, like, made all the money from all this, like, you know, year of, like, this whole year of labor or whatever, and people just went crazy. And when Tamar asked for Judah's signet, cord, and staff until payment was made, this is essentially the ancient equivalent of Judah's wallet with his license and credit card. It's the way to identify where he's from, what family he belongs to, etc. And another observation to be made about Tamar's trap is that it was about her getting justice for the abuses that she suffered. But at the same time, it's obviously highly risky, but it's also questionable, ethically, morally, and legally, because it raises questions about incest, about getting vengeance. And this is what we learn when we suffer at the hands of others. No one remains fully innocent. As the theologian Miroslav Volf puts it, Evil generates new evil as evildoers fashion victims in their own ugly image. Evil generates new evil as evildoers fashion victims in their own ugly image. And even though we may not have the tenacity of Tamar to get revenge in this manner, do we not think evil thoughts about the people who have wronged us and committed murder in our hearts through the process? And as we see how evil compounds evil and as brokenness spreads like a plague in this story, we have to wonder, where is God in all of this? He hasn't been mentioned since the beginning of this chapter, verse 20 to 25. And when Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitute here. What are you talking about? And they said, uh, and so he returned to Judah and said, I, I, can't find, I couldn't find her. I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, there's no cult prostitute here. And Judah replied, then let her keep the things that are as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Because you see, I sent this young goat, and he did not find her. And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, 
by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. And so notice how quickly Judah reacts in wanting to get rid of Tamar. He's still blaming her for everything that went wrong in his newly started life. And how convenient this was for him. She could be shamed and condemned as an adulterer, and Judah could position himself as a fine, upstanding member of his community. If that doesn't make you mad, I don't know what will. And yet he remained completely blind to his sin and hypocrisy. Because remember, he was with a prostitute just three months before this. Verse 26, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. But amazingly, God shows him mercy through all of his self-righteous hypocrisy. She's more righteous than I. He recognizes his own guilt, and after years of blaming others for his problems, he finally recognizes his own guilt. He lied to Tamar, denied her rights, left her without hope. He was literally guilty of the same sin for which he wanted her killed. But what she had done out of desperation, he did it to satisfy his own desires. And from all of this, the best news of all was that Tamar wasn't cursed because Judah was living proof. And if Judah gained anything from this, it was an ability to relate to his father, Jacob. Now, this is where it starts getting really cool. All right, listen up. Like Jacob, he tried to protect his youngest, even to the hurt of others. Like Jacob, he was duped by a mysterious veiled woman into a relationship different from the one he expected. Like Jacob, he did not recognize Leah in his bed as he, um, as he did not recognize Tamar in his bed. As strange as it may sound, it was the recognition of his sins that allowed Judah to reconcile with his brother and especially with his father. What we learn from this is that in order to repent and receive healing from generational sin, he had to be confronted of his own hypocrisy, of his own sins. He had to finally see just how much like his, like his father he had become. It's uncomfortable, but that's the beginning of healing. And it gets cooler. The events of Genesis 38 span for over 20 to 22 years. And this is the same number of years that match the time of Joseph's ordeal in Egypt as a slave. The two stories are running parallel. And so what happens is that by the time we get to Judah's confession of guilt to Tamar, Judah's next period in life or that we see is in chapter 43. It's a continuation. That's the next part. It's one story where Judah now confesses, and now it's 43, chapter 43. He's back home. He comes back home. And the story of 40, chapter 44, the 11 brothers are united. And they go down to Egypt, and they plead with the prime minister of Egypt for the life of their youngest brother, Benjamin, their father's new favorite son. 
because the prime minister, who was actually Joseph in disguise, the same brother who was sold into slavery, he set a trap for his brothers to test their character, to see if they, if they regret hurting their father and selling him into slavery. He's testing them. Then one of the older brothers eventually stands up and says, please, free our brother Benjamin and take my life instead so he can return home to our father. I cannot bear seeing the sadness on my father's face if I return home without our youngest brother. This humbled, sacrificial older brother was Judah. In the end, God's commitment to Judah and the rest of his family never wavered. For the rest of this chapter, God is not mentioned, and yet we see that he was working all along. Even when he tried to run away as far as he could, God was always there. He was there all along, while Joseph also endured, slave, endured decades of slavery and misery. Finally, from Judah and Tamar, we learn a few things about the gospel. First, as when light shining in our eyes after a long period of darkness brings a moment of pain before clarity, there is no way to learn humility and receive repentance and healing from generational sin than by being confronted with the embarrassing, shameful, foolish, hurtful, and sinful things that we do. We might as well get used to it because humility seems important to God. Just as Christ opened the eyes of the physically blind, he continues, to op he continues to open the eyes of the spiritually blind in a similar manner. Hence, the improbable repentance of Judah is incredibly good news because all of us are much bigger, have much bigger sins than we can imagine with much harder hearts than we realize. And from Tamar, we learn that her breakthrough places her in the very middle at the very heart of God's saving purposes for humanity. Verse 27 to 30. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But he withdrew his hand, and behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now consider the birth of her twins through Judah. Zerah was associated, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Zerah was associated with which color at his birth? You guys can shout it out. Scarlet, right? Red, right? Just like whom? Esau. What about her second son? He came out right after, such that his name was Perez, or literally translated as breakthrough. The name is so fitting, isn't it? What breakthrough did Perez symbolize? And having twins that were awfully similar to the birth of Esau and Jacob, Judah now had the chance to relive his father's childhood from the perspective of Isaac, his father's father. He could now see his own father in his own sons. He could see his uncle in his own sons and see how hard it must have been for them. 
as they fought for their father's love and attention. Not only that, Tamar was fully vindicated from her shame. The fact that Judah didn't die after sleeping with her was, was proof that she wasn't cursed. Perez was truly the breakthrough child. Later on in Scripture, Tamar is mentioned two more times. Three more times, but we'll stick to two because there's two genealogies. Tamar is mentioned first at the wedding of Boaz and Ruth a marriage between an Israelite and a Gentile. And in this marriage, the elders of Bethlehem declare, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Once thought cursed, Tamar's memory now involved the model of God's blessing. And through Boaz, a descendant of her son Perez, Tamar became the ancestor to which famous king in the Old Testament? David. Then another passage in Scripture, Tamar once again appears in the genealogy that lists other outsiders, rejects, and redeemed prostitutes. But this genealogy didn't just produce any king. Produce the greatest king of all, Jesus Christ. Though Tamar faced a hopeless future at the bottom of society as a childless, abused, discarded widow, through God's intervention, she became the mother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We're all damaged goods, profoundly broken, yet this is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus is the true breakthrough child who came to seek and save that which is lost. Through Judah and Tamar, Jesus was the son of a prostitute. Maybe that's why he was so committed to spending time with prostitutes and other sinners. Maybe that explains why he has such a special place for them in his heart and ministry. Maybe that's why he was so excited to tell them about the triumph of grace over our brokenness. He brought grace, acceptance, transformation, and hope for sinning sufferers and victim perpetrators. He adopts us into a family where generational sin is no more. While Judah had blamed Tamar for his sins to maintain his own innocence, Judah took our blame and our shame so that it might be put to death with him also at the cross. He now covers, Jesus now covers us with his perfection saying, you are cleaned, you are healed, you are forgiven. Takes away our sin and makes us acceptable in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And that way, He removes our curse forever and welcomes us into this amazing, perfect family of God where we can be loved and protected by Him. And in that way, Jesus gives us the light to see and the power to break free from the chains of generational sins, to give, grant us repentance from, the, from becoming the people that we hate most so that we can no longer, so that we no longer have to be like Judah, but so that we can have the power and freedom to be like Jesus to the next generation. Let's pray.
Dear Holy Father, I, I, I don't know what generational trauma and baggages that people here are bringing with them, if at all. Lord, but I do know that our lifetime of living in this world, interacting with other human beings, other sinners like us, to shape us into certain kinds of people. And so, Lord, I, I pray that for all of us here that you may grant us repentance from any sin that lingers in our hearts, evil that has been impressed upon us, any bitterness that's rooted. I pray that you may just grant us the ability to forgive But we are no better. So Lord, we thank you for Christ who came from this line of broken sinners who came as our older brother to free us who said to our greatest enemy, take my life so that my younger brothers and sisters can go home to their father. We thank you that Christ made all this possible so that we can finally come back home and be safe and be freed from generational sins as we are adopted into this new family that's perfect, righteous, and clean. We thank you that, you that we are grafted into this family through the blood of Christ. We pray that this message of hope and redemption may strike those of us who are not yet believers, that we too, that all of us can be liberated from these. So we thank you for Christ who makes all this possible. It's his name we pray. Amen.